0: That's where you're like, now I want to build something that's going to solve this problem for everyone.
1: Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's such a big challenge. It's really complicated business. When I describe to other founders, how our business is structured and what we need to do, they look at me, they're horrified. You're listening to This Much I Know, the seed Camp Podcast.
0: Welcome everyone. On today's episode, I have the founder and CEO of Boundless HQ, Dee Coakley, joining us to talk about all the challenges of hiring and scaling companies with a remote slant. So welcome Dee.
1: Hello, Carlos. Thanks so much for having me.
0: I I should probably add that A, it's great that we got to back you early in the journey. I forgot to mention that. And B, guys, if you're listening to this, I apologize if there's some sort of weird interruption here and there. Uh, lockdown living. I think Dee has some construction in the background. And on my end, I think the postman might ring the door any second now. So I apologize in advance. It's
1: really um, like these days, isn't
0: it? It is. It's amazing. And, and you have a cute dog, which hopefully we'll get to see before the episode's over, but apparently sleeping. So I don't want to wake up. Um, so yeah. So welcome, Dee. And I'd love for you to tell your story about everything that happened in your life that said, at one point, I should start this company, Boundless.
1: There was a lot. There was a lot that led up to this. I do remember when I first started talking with my co-founder, Eamon, I remember him saying to me, uh, what we talk, you know, I talked through my backstory and everything that I'd done up to that point uh, at much more length than I will now. And he said, it seems inevitable that you are going to found this company. And I think that's true. Uh, so I spent, um, s- sounds unconnected or disconnected from what I do now, but actually I learned a lot during that period I spent seven years in the music industry before moving to tech always worked in commercial planning and marketing roles uh nobody was paying me money to to sing but uh yeah it was quite a lot of what I did was quite operational actually so it was a a pretty good grounding very different world but working with creative people who were really were building something the artists and musicians that I was working with were, were constantly working on a product, you know, usually an album. It was always product marketing. People were hugely passionate about what they did, and it certainly was not a nine to five job. So I'd come from that kind of background. After seven years there, I actually consciously wanted to move into tech. Music's tough. Uh, there's not a lot of money in music. And it's, a, it's an industry that people leave once they're they're coming out of their 20s you know, people move on. And I was at that point and I thought, hmm, this internet thing seems big. There seems to be a lot of opportunity there. And I actually thought I'd move into tech, get some experience and probably start a music tech startup. That was where my my head was at that point. But probably within weeks, that quickly, as soon as I joined tech, I thought, this is it. I I'm I'm, will never go back. This this world suits me. I'm really happy here. So I actually got a job. I saw a job advert online. It was on Monster. Remember Monster? Everyone used yes, to Monster. Love it. A company called Misabi, which many of your listeners have probably used Misabi's technology unknowingly. If, if you bought a train ticket on your mobile phone, anywhere in the UK, in New York, Boston, you know, a huge number of major cities worldwide, uh, Misabi's tech is, is behind train ticketing apps. At this stage, it was five engineers and no live product, and they advertised looking for a commercial manager. They didn't really know what a commercial manager was. I didn't know what a commercial manager was, but they gave me the job. <laughs> and I think I was really an ops manager from day one. We secured funding and then I, I became the COO. So I, I subsequently spent 10 years in COO roles across three different tech startups, including Misabi. In each of those roles, I had responsibility for finance, legal and HR. And I went really deep on each of those things. Uh, I was that, you know, I was generally, generally the sole HR person or there might have been an administrator supporting me, but I made all the decisions around HR. I produced all of the employment agreements. I would have implemented all of the employee share option schemes. And I, I went deep, really deep. And on the legal side, I went really deep and I knew it was going to stand to me wherever I went in my career to be able to tear apart a legal agreement, produce a legal agreement from a blank page, understand legislation and how that informs legal agreements and particularly employment legislation. And I had no, at that stage, I had no, you know, I didn't see myself starting HR tech business, but um, had that exposure. And then the last company I was with, Axonista, an interactive video tech company, we ended up very organically with this internationally distributed team. We were hiring co-located for HQ in Dublin, but people were moving back to home countries or um, looking for new experiences living in other places, and we were keeping them on. And I ended up overseeing the setup of employment and payroll for eight countries, and it was a complete nightmare. You know, we were registering entities, I was trying to find lawyers and accountants, we were constantly hitting roadblocks, trying to register as an employer with the local tax authorities. We used really crummy third-party service providers to help us out with all of this stuff. And it was just a really sucky experience. Mm. And I started talking to lots of other COOs, and every one of them said that they were experiencing the same thing. They were all really unhappy with every service provider that they used they all have budget to solve this problem and they were all looking for a better solution. So I started to think maybe I should do something about this. But I was, I was reluctant at first, but I got there in the end.
0: So that's, that's where you're like, now I want to build something that's going to solve this problem for everyone.
1: Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's such a big challenge. It's really complicated business. When I describe to other founders how our business is structured and what we need to do, they look at me; they're horrified. Yeah, <laughs> but my business is most founders, you know, it's their nightmare business. You know, it's all about really complex cross-border finance. Um, you know, we—I'm a director of twenty-five entities worldwide. It's a lot of complexity, a lot of legal risk. And at the start, I thought, well, I don't know if this can be done. Can it, Surely lots of people have tried to solve this problem before. No one's built a good solution. Is that because it's just simply not possible because you're dealing with governments and their timelines and all of this complexity? Is it possible to deliver a good, consistent customer experience where there is all of this complexity and mess in the background. Um, so maybe, maybe
0: this is a good point to explain one key thing, which I think mm-hmm. underpins what you're just saying. And especially for the audience who might not be well-versed in this. So there's a difference between hiring somebody as a contractor or something and, and, or having them as a satellite versus you setting up an employer record in that geography and then that entity hiring that person on your behalf. I think that's that's a critical little detail to cover to then, because that, that, that underpins the, the foundation of, of Boundless and how it differs from other, other companies that are trying to do the same. Maybe, maybe you can go into a little bit of that background to then talk a little bit about what you guys are doing.
1: Yeah, sure. And if people have not dealt directly with these challenges themselves, although most people, probably almost everyone, has been an employee at some point in their lives, a lot of people are really unaware of the technicalities of these challenges. So if I'm a company operating out of the UK And I get connected to some great engineer in France and he starts working for me or she starts working for me. I might set them up as an independent contractor company. I mean, you know, most of the listeners to this podcast probably have independent contractors. Companies do this all the time. And, you know, often you won't have challenges. It it might all work out fine for you, but it's actually not legal. In many, many countries, it's simply not legal to have someone working as an independent contractor for you full time and long term. If someone has a a business, essentially, if they have multiple clients and for you, they're just working part time and they're working on a discrete project for you and they're going away and doing the work and bringing it back. That's fine. Most governments will say that's an independent contractor. But if someone has a company email address, they attend your internal meetings, someone at your company manages and oversees their work, most governments say that's an employee. You can write what you want on a piece of paper, you can put whatever label you want on it, but that person is entitled to employment rights and you have to pay employer tax contributions and process their payroll in a way that's compliant in that country and pay the taxes in that country. Anyone in that position at any point in time could go to the local authorities and take you to an employment tribunal locally or look for the protections and rights of the laws of that country that they're based in. So how we solve this is boundless. We have entities in all of the countries where we support employment, we're registered as an employer with the local tax authorities. We have locally compliant employment agreements. We have a deep understanding of the employment law locally. We're completely on top of it when the laws change. And we enable our customers to be compliant, high quality employers locally by us acting as the legal employer on their behalf. So we are an employer of record. In the US, it will be our, our organization will be referred to as a PEO. Um, so... So yeah, hopefully that explains it. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, it, it totally does. And I, and I think that's a good starting point to talk a little bit about the organization as in your your company. Maybe before we we go much deeper into it, though, maybe you can talk a little bit about Eamon and uh, Emily, just uh, your co-founders, uh, a, a shout out to them uh, who are not joining us, but maybe just a little bit about what they do in the organization.
1: Yeah, so I was very fortunate to meet two great co-founders around the time, I had gone deep on research, but I hadn't really kicked off. I was really clear on what the value proposition was and what we needed to build, the model, uh, the legal structure that we would be operating. And really coincidentally, I'm I'm not, you know, I've always been an ops person. I'm not an engineer. I've never built product, although I've worked in product environments. And very serendipitously, I bumped into my co-founder Eamon. We were both mentoring at a program, and we ended up going for coffee and talking for hours about this. And he had just been, he had just experienced the problem that we solved trying to build a team in Europe. And then separately to that, I ended up talking with Emily because she and I had worked together at a company called Basimpli quite a few years before. She had decided she was moving on from there. She wanted to work for an organization that was focused on facilitating remote work. She had been an international remote worker for the few years before that. And she just felt really strongly about enabling people to do this because of the upsides from a lifestyle perspective. So she had said that as her personal mission, didn't know what I was working on. And we went for coffee her last day at that job. And she, she was heading off cycling around the Alps for six weeks but uh, we said we'd talk when she got back, and her and Eamon had known each other for many years, so they were really excited to work together. So that was a good, good serendipitous uh, coming together of three founders.
0: Nice. Well, I um, I, I love them all, so I, I I wish we could have had them on on, but obviously we'll just have to wave at them and be like, hey guys. Um, so let's go quickly into jurisdictions, because I think that's a, a huge part of, mm-hmm. of what you guys do. What jurisdictions do you currently cover? Why have you chosen them? And, and what, what are the unique ones that um, most people underestimate in complexity that uh, you're like, look, you know, I'm going to spare you the pain. Come with us right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, and and I say this to friends all the time. This this is not me speaking as the CEO of a global employment platform. This is me speaking as the COO, you know, when I was a COO and friends, friend of other people solving this problem. If you work for a company that is at a size and stage where you don't yet have a finance team and a legal team and a people ops team, Do not try doing this stuff yourself. Only do it for territories where, for strategic reasons, your organization has established operations. So if, for example, you're setting up a U.S. sales office, that's fine. You will have a lawyer in the U.S. You will have an accountant and it is worth figuring out the employment piece there. I mean, to be frank, in the U.S., everyone uses PEOs anyhow, because the Americans figured out this stuff was really challenging uh, before the rest of the world. Um, But yeah, you you know, it's it, it's just simply uh, taking a completely unbiased view. If you talk to anyone that has solved these problems, they will tell you it's far too challenging for a company with anything up to a few thousand people. It's just too challenging to do yourself. So territories, we when we look at what territories will launch in and when, we have, and when I say a complex matrix, we literally have a matrix. We have a document where we score against certain criteria, so ease of doing business in the country, friction points from a customer perspective, um, friction points from an employee perspective, the cost of us entering that country, market demand, so where there are Real hubs of talent and where we see a lot of customers having people. We take all of these things into account when looking at a new territory. We have a lot of heavy lifting to do for each territory. And the period of time it takes varies wildly from a few months up to a couple of years For one country. So in terms of where we have coverage, we're now live for 17 countries, really good coverage in Europe, Denmark, France, Germany, Ireland, UK, Estonia, Lithuania, Netherlands, Poland, Portugal. Uh, Portugal and Germany will be two of our most popular countries. Also, the, the UK is very popular. Outside of that, we have Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Philippines. And then on the other side of the world, we have Canada and Brazil. We're adding one or two countries every month. So that list is growing very rapidly.
0: And, and what our, kind of companies can you support there? Like um, is it just, I mean, kind of like a sub subreddit of the of the question, but it's like, is this open to any kind of industry or is this, or is there some industries that you can't support?
1: So the only things we don't support are hourly paid workers or seasonal workers. Uh, There are a variety of reasons why we don't support that. It's it's full-time salaried employees are what we support. Uh, The nature of what we do in our connections and, and the nature of international remote work means it's a lot of knowledge workers that are supported on the platform. But in terms of sectors, it's a big array, a lot of tech companies, as you would expect, but also pharmaceutical companies, financial services, media companies, manufacturing Uh, but say for manufacturing it would tend to be knowledge workers that we would support rather than people on the factory floor because they tend to be in a location where the organization has operations
0: and do you want to share maybe a couple of horror stories that you might have of people you've had to bail out so in other words they were already in some sort of situation and then now you've had to like take a step back help them sort their stuff out and now they're far better off than were before. Yeah,
1: sure. Yeah. I mean you, you asked about countries there a moment ago and where where should people really not look to do this themselves. I mean France is a really good example. We France is a running joke now. <laughs> we often joke maybe we should set up like a you know we should have another company a separate startup just to support France or you know we, we joke we, we need a full slack channel just with questions about France. Nice. Um, France is man they don't make it easy to do anything that involves admin there and our lives are admin. Uh, yeah, we are, to give a little bit of context, Lore, who runs our country expansion, is French and lives in France. And my co-founder, Emily, lives in France. So we have a director in France. So we've, you know, we have the language support, we have the local support. It's as easy as it could be um, for us, but it's complex. Somewhere like Netherlands or Germany, you should be really aware that employee termination is really challenging boundless we absorb a lot of that risk um you in Germany and Netherlands if you want to let someone go if you don't have any more work there genuinely isn't a job there for them you have to go in front of a judge and plead your case you you know it's not a simple matter of filling in some forms in Netherlands the judge will uh, declare what level of compensation you need to give the individual in Germany sometimes they'll just say no. And you'll say, but I, I don't have any work for this person. And they'll say, you figure that out. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're challenging territories. Um, I think you'll ask me another question. There. Oh, I mean. It's, oh, yeah, it's, some horror stories. Yeah? yeah, I have a couple. So, yeah, I mean, what we see a lot of. And, you know, I saw this recently with really large, or you see this, you, we see this just as much with large, sometimes publicly traded organizations, as much as we do the tiny early stage startups, um, you know, a company that came to us recently, and they have an individual in Germany, and they've been working for them for many months, and they've just been paying them, I said, you, know, you know, so how are you processing the payroll, oh no, we've just been paying them, and the payroll, how did you deal with the payroll, we just transfer them funds, so you've just transferred funds into their bank account in Germany, but you don't have any employment agreement, you haven't processed payroll, you don't have any pay slips. And of course, and I do understand, you know, I've run payroll in places like the UK and Ireland, where sometimes someone gets started and you mightn't have taken care of all the paperwork. A month one, you process some back pay. And that's fine. You know, the Irish authorities and the UK authorities are pretty chill. They're they're like, look, the important thing is you've sorted the tax. At the end of the year, it's all fine. So, you know, they, they uh, were under the assumption that we could just run back pay. But somewhere like Germany, the German authorities are very clear. I love doing business in places like Germany because you know where you stand. There is no gray area. You don't have to try and figure stuff out. And a lot of our lives at us. we are figuring stuff out and interpreting legislation. But Germany, it's just you, you can't be just making payments to people and not processing payroll. So they've created this compliance challenge For themselves, and we can support them with being compliant going forward, but we can't rewrite or erase history. So it's really important to deal with these things early. Um, Another one, we had a customer, they've become a really good customer of ours now. We had just started working with them supporting an employee I think it was in Portugal and they were quite again quite a large organization a few thousand employees and in month one of working with us with their employee in Portugal they sent us an email they have an entity in the UK and they were employing quite a few people through this entity for a couple of years I think and they sent me a forward of a letter they'd received from HMRC the tax authority in the UK saying what is this what do we do about this and I thought this it funny i actually posted mentioned it to my team in our, our customer op slack channel i said guys i think we may need to figure out what do we do when customers come asking us to help them with countries where they're not paying us any money to support them in that country you know they don't have a boundless employee in that country they have their own operations they have their own lawyers they have their own accountants but they're asking us for advice and we said you know we'll i'll just give them the yeah i know the answer to this question we'll just give them the advice but we thought, do we need to come up with a policy for this? And we said, let's see if it comes up regularly. So I went back and th- what had happened was they had not enrolled their UK employees in a pension scheme in the UK. It's an Irish HQ company with a few thousand employees in different countries. But they in Ireland, there is no mandatory enrollment in a pension scheme. So they just didn't, it didn't cross their minds that this was a thing in the UK. And HMRC sent them a, you know, it looks like a very scary letter. I mean, HMRC are not that scary, really. But, you know, it was like, you know, you could be subject to fines. You have not fulfilled your obligations as an employer. Off the top of my head, I was able to say, oh, that's because there's mandatory pension enrollment in the UK. Actually, it's a bit of an odd one. You can enrol them, but they can actually opt out. So you don't necessarily have to follow through with that pension. So they came back in about an hour and said, you know what, we're just going to move all of our UK employees onto Bandless. Music to our ears. They have lawyers, they have accountants, they have operations, but they had experienced the boundless experience for an employee in another country. And they thought this is going to cost us a lot more than doing this ourselves. But we understand the value and so getting this scary letter saying we might get fines. It's just not going to happen to us again if we use boundless.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and maybe this is a good point to talk a little bit more about what you guys do in totality. Um, you know you've kind of thrown anecdotes that you help with with um the hiring, the payroll, the firing. What else? I mean, like, what's the comprehensive list of things that you offer somebody across those jurisdictions?
1: So, I always say we operate from the assumption that our customer knows absolutely nothing about employment, employment law, payroll, tax, benefits in this country. Some of our customers know quite a bit. A lot, even the really large companies will know absolutely zero about this country. So we give them everything they need to feel really comfortable and confident and to ensure that they will have no challenges. And what that encompasses is we will provide the employment agreement that will be fully compliant with everything locally. It will be due language. We guide them in filling in the variable terms on that contract. Our um, product will guide them as to the parameters of what they can and can't do in that country. Uh, then we will make sure that the employees are set up for payroll. We will guide the customer as to what the requirements are for payroll in that country. We provide guidance to the customer on benefits and what their statutory obligations are in that country. So we distill, if, you know, if you go Googling, what are my obligations as an employer in the Netherlands? You're going to find thousands and thousands of websites, some of them saying conflicting things, some of them with old information from prior years. We distill all of that down. Down into a really—it's actually an infographic where we say this is statutory minimum. You must do these things. This is what a good employer does. This is what a really great employer that goes above and beyond. That's what they will be doing in this country. Because of course you might be competing for really, um, really valuable talent. So you might not want to do just the statutory minimums. Then we have relationships with benefits providers in the country, so we can sort things like pensions, health insurance. We process the payroll file the taxes, provide the payslips, and we make the payments to the individual, to the tax authorities, to the local benefits providers.
0: Yeah, it's quite comprehensive. And, you know, I think we're living in interesting times where because how much the organization is changing and how organizations are built, it's no surprise that there's like multiple different companies building similar things to Boundless. Maybe it's a good chance to talk about your, like somebody's going through and looking at your competitors and you, like they're going to be stuck on making a decision what makes you guys stand out over it, alternatives
1: it's a busy space um so you know, this market is absolutely enormous. It is huge and growing every day at a very, very fast pace. There are different types of customers. There are customers that are very, very price sensitive where cost might be their their real priority and they're not so concerned about compliance. You know, maybe it's just a tick box for them. Often that's the very early stage startups where maybe a CEO or CTO is making decision. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have the publicly traded companies that are maybe operating in a regulated space like financial services or pharma, where compliance is super important to them. And when you look at the market and companies offering employer of record, there are companies that exist all along that spectrum. We offer full robust compliance. You know, I always say on sales calls with customers, our guiding light when we're making decisions around interpreting legislation is where are we fully compliant? Because I want to be able to look customers in the eye and say, we are taking care of you. You are not going to have problems if you use Boundless. We offer full, robust, complete compliance, and we will completely support you with everything that you need. Anyone that's a head of legal, a head of finance, a CFO, a COO, they will Oh, his comment. When we do sales calls, of course they've had a look around online. They've looked at a few others. Almost 100 of the time, they'll say it's very clear from looking at your website that you guys are the experts, and that that's really where we lie. You know, I'm from an ops background. We have hired a team of international experts who are people who are really at the top of their game, and are very focused on building a super high quality product, and, and that's really where where we sit. Um, Customers definitely get that impression from just looking online, but certainly when they hop on a sales call, the customers that have the complex technical questions will feel that they're really well taken care of by boundless. Once we're, you know, once we've sold to a customer, they can completely self-serve within our product. They don't necessarily need to talk to us very regularly, but you're, you're talking about the law. You're talking about humans. You're talking about tax. The, the law and the tax systems, they change over time. You have challenges with individuals. So so there are these touch points throughout the relationship. This is not like buying a widget. Mm. And customers don't make the decision the way, say, a CTO buying a software tool might make a decision. Mm. different buying decision. And customers understand that the value that we bring relative to others in the space.
0: Mm. Well, if, if we focus now a little bit on advice, advice you would give founders now. So to some extent the advice the temptation with this question is that the advice would be like who's boundless you know so i want to i want the advice to be about more just thinking about an organization what are the i mean one of the questions that i know that i've, I've been asking and that you've been dealing with is how to deal with compensation discrepancies. You know, some founders are, I want to pay everyone equally. I want to pay people differently, ghost shares and all that stuff. So maybe just walk us through like the top pieces of advice or maybe alternatively, what are the questions you get asked the most that you help resolve?
1: The compensation and compensation for internationally remote teams is it really, it's one of my favorite topics. I love it. I find it really, it's really interesting I've spoken on a number of podcasts and given talks about, about this topic recently. It's a really hot topic. The key thing with all of this is to have a defined approach, to be transparent about it with your team and to stick with it. It's not like there is the right approach and there is the wrong approach. It's it's not that black and white, but considering it and applying the same thinking consistently is what's important. And I, I ran a round table probably about four or five months ago on this topic. With heads of people ops from, it's Chatham House rules. So we never say who the companies are involved, but some of Silicon Valley's top tech companies, companies you would have heard of, some of these heads of people ops have held that role at maybe three or four companies. So these, these are world leading experts on this stuff. Some of these people are people who've been making decisions about this stuff for many years at board level. And the consensus around the table was there's no right or wrong way. Some people have worked at organizations that have taken different approaches and, and they say, you know, they each work. Well, at Boundless, what we do is we, we call it equal pay for equal work, which, which sounds very kind of um. A socialist but I'll in a moment explain why it's also a challenging approach you know we, we benchmark against Dublin London salaries some new roles we're hiring for I was just looking at salaries yesterday Dublin and London were very close we ended up going with with the London salaries so for most people in most parts of the world that's going to be a good salary compared to locally so for european hires that's a good salary um it's not quite silicon valley but you know that that's what we benchmark against my attitude is we don't police how you spend your money if you live in a more expensive part of london versus a lower cost part i'm not going to say i'm going to pay you more or less so i i apply that same thinking if you live in rural croatia versus dublin which is a very expensive city if i'm hiring you as a marketing manager you're interviewing based on the same salary, wherever you're based. Now, the challenges with that approach are, is it really fair? Because each of those people lives in a territory that has very different tax regimes. So their take home is very different. Also, as an employer, the costs to me are very different. So, for example, as an employer, if I employ someone in Denmark, my employer statutory taxes come out at about 1.25%. If I employ the same person in Portugal or if they decide to move to Portugal in the same role, paying the same salary, I'm going to have to pay about 30% statutory employer payments on top of the salary. So although I might be paying people the same gross salary, my cost is I'm actually spending very different amounts on different people. The other approach is to local market rate. So you're hiring and you say, well, the going rate right now for a Ruby engineer in Estonia is X. So that's what I'm paying my Ruby engineer that lives in Estonia. And then I'm hiring a Ruby engineer that lives in London and the average going rate is Y in London. That's what I pay the person in London. That really talented engineer in Estonia, if you won't pay them London rates, somebody else probably will. The other approach then is to have a formula where, and a lot of Californian companies do this because paying Californian rates to all of your team everywhere in the world, you know, that's really going to impact your runway. And for some companies, they simply can't do it. They just don't have the runway. So then you apply a formula, usually based on some kind of cost of living index uh, linked to the city where the person is. Um, Sometimes people will have other formula criteria, level of seniority, level of experience and so on. So there are a few different approaches. And then of course, there's, do you go for full transparency across the organization with your pay? When I've talked to heads of people ops who've worked in organizations that have done this across the board, everyone says it works really well. When you switch to transparent, from not being transparent, when you publish those salaries and everyone can see them, you will sometimes lose a few people because some people won't agree with the approach that's been taken. But anyone I've talked to who runs people ups in an organization that does this believes it's the right way to go and across the board, they say it has worked.
0: I've heard mixed reviews on that because it means that you, if you want to retain some of those people, you end up having to do some realignment. And then, of course, you have the challenges that you mentioned. If they're not in the same jurisdiction, you end up actually having different costs to the organization. So, yeah, it's it's not an easy question. People that are being hired via you are still considered to be part of the team in a different way and therefore require or expect uh, equity. And so how does that work? How did, How does Boundless help with that? Or how do you recommend people to be both employed and equity-holding in remote locations.
1: So this is a really tough one. And when you say equity holding, there there is a bit of a difference between equity, like founders and share options. So Um,
0: what I'm saying, I'm using the word equity as a, even looser than that, mm. some sort of mapping to some sort of shareholding to some sort of commercial cash distribution at a liquidity point. And I'm using that ambiguous language because I know there's multiple ways of categorizing but for for like the listeners it's like look i need to give this person shares of some yeah. sort and the, the subtleties of the different structures can be confusing but maybe walks through that
1: yeah i mean this this is really difficult it's really really difficult you know the world wasn't built on legislation and tax regimes when they were originally defined bearing in mind that we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years ago when these things started um No one was considering cross-border employment and, you know, allocating equity to cross-border employees. The the reality is there is no easy way to do this. We are building a solution, looking to build a solution at Boundless. You know, I would dearly love if we could solve this problem. But the challenge is that different countries have conflicting legislation around how this stuff is handled. So we are actually... Currently building out our ESOP scheme for the team at Boundless and we are going to eat our own dog food, which we do every day of the week. Anyhow, all of our team are employed through Boundless. We run our payroll through Boundless. Uh, You know, we, we experience all of the challenges our customers experience. We are attempting to define an employee share option scheme that is compliant with each of the countries where our people are based. We currently have people in eight countries. Now, I suspect this is technically impossible. I don't think this is something that can be achieved, but we're going to attempt to do it. And if we can, we'll build out a product around that. Now, you need to be aware as a founder that while receiving share options might pose no major challenges in the territory that you're based in. So if we look at the UK, HMRC are really great about employee share option schemes and you can have an approved scheme there. I've set them up myself. It's uh, great system. You can get a great discount on the strike price for employees. That system just simply doesn't exist in many other countries. And you need to remember that The rights and protections that your UK employees have under the paperwork you will have in the UK, that will not be afforded to your employees in other territories. And there are territories, I mean, Ireland's one of them, where when you allocate share options to people, technically, they're supposed to pay tax on share options, even though share options have no inherent value. It's a piece of paper. Drive tax. Most people I know working at early stage startups don't have, you know, a couple of hundred grand in the bank or whatever. The tax bill is going to be tens of thousands in the bank to pay that tax bill.
0: And do you, so, do you create, do you create, I mean, one of the things that I've heard that some people are doing is like sort of ghost share scheme. I mean, there's different names for it, but basically it's like a virtual mapping of the yeah. option pool. So you'll have like the HQ option pool. If you're in the HQ country, you get proper Options. If you're not an HQ country, you get like a virtual machine, if you will, mapping of that value. And then if there is a a distribution, you know, you get it. I mean, that does affect whether you would pay income tax versus capital gains tax in your local country. But then it makes the process a lot simpler. Do you see anybody doing stuff like that?
1: It's a lot simpler. I, to be honest, I don't talk to many companies that are doing that. There may be lots of people. It might be just that the people that have that figured out don't ask me about it. You yeah. know, so. So, my sample size is skewed because when people ask it's because they haven't made a decision yeah it's definitely much straight much more straightforward to do something like that also bear in mind that in lots of countries the capital gains tax on employee share options isn't great anyway it's not as good as the UK so in the UK you want people to be paying capital gains rather than income tax but in many other countries that option isn't available so you're not necessarily penalizing people we have blog content coming on this stuff which we can share with the yeah. community. It's an interesting area. What you know, as I say, one I hope we will build a solution for.
0: Nice. Well, there you have it, guys. Uh, the comprehensive guide on building out an international organization, facilitated by Boundless. And if you uh, go to the website, Boundless HQ, you will find all those resources plus hopefully engage. Now, I think Dee's going to bring her do- Yes, guest appearance. This is Richie. Hey, Richie. Wow, what a
1: cute dog. He got a little bit of a facial haircut today. <laughs> He's very hairy. He's got a bad eye. He's going to the bed legs on his right hand.
0: <laughs> it's a pirate. It's um, well, I, I'm glad that we got to see Richie before the episode was over. Thanks so much for joining us, Dee. It was absolute pleasure and so much great advice. And hopefully more people will take that advice and build organizations the smart way from the beginning and not pay for those sins later
1: hopefully thanks so much carlos
0: no worries all right until next time guys bye